Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, if you will. Uh, if you're visiting with us, I might mention that what we're going to study tonight is sort of a continuation of uh, what we've been looking at the last few weeks through this month, and that is godly leaders and what the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 3 about the qualifications and the work of those who lead God's people. And so our study t- t- today is going to be on the second part of chapter 3 uh, on the subject of the appointment of deacons. Uh, in this text, the, Bible, the Apostle Paul is providing credentials for church leaders. Uh, and within those credentials, there are not only specific qualifications, but also a very uh, important uh, teaching on the work itself and what leaders are to accomplish uh, within the local congregation. Well, what is a deacon? We find the word here in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, that's one of the questions we're going to look at is the words themselves. One of the qualifications of deacons, Paul mentions them here. In fact, this is the only specific text about the, about the qualifications of those who are appointed to be a deacon. And those the words and the qualifications that are mentioned here also give us some insight into the work of the deacon. The Lord willing, maybe in a future lesson, we're going to look at Acts chapter 6, which they think is a case study of the appointment of deacons. Uh, we'll not have time maybe to do that this morning, but we'll try to do that in, in another lesson. But if you want to turn to the text itself, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 8, the apostle says, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, let them also be tested first, and then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own household well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. when we look at this particular passage, I think, and really looking at all the whole chapter, what we've already discussed about, uh, as well, the qualifications of deacons, we recognize that the qualifications of elders, we also recognize that, uh, that this is one of those places in the scriptures where we find the specific word deacon used. Um, and the word translated here by deacon, uh, I think, is important for us to define. We'll try to do that as best we can to give us an overall view of how to interpret the particular text. But looking at the words, the word deacon uh, in the original language, the Greek language, uh, is diakonos. Uh, and Strong defines that as a servant, as one who is a minister or, or an attendant, uh, someone who serves another person or maybe serves God. And It's a very common word in the New Testament. Uh, it's a word sometimes that's used both as a noun, talking about someone who is uh, a, a, a diakonos, uh, and also it's used many times in the verb form uh, by translated by the word to serve. So person serves God, uh, we are servants of God, uh, and the, the, the concept of servant is found there many, many times. What, we're going to, what we notice about this word, though, as we try to look at the definition and flow it into the text that we're studying this morning, is that it's used both in a general and a specific way. So it doesn't do as well, and that's true about a lot of words in the New Testament as we define them, to just pick up, to pick a definition and to plug it into every place that the word might be used. That might be helpful for us sometimes in the English language, but sometimes it really throws us for a loop when we try to do it in another language, and the Greek language is many times is that way, and we're trying to find what the actual word meant. But sometimes the word is used in a general way, uh, which means that it's the word the diakonos means servant of both God and men. Uh, so Mark chapter 9, verse 35, Jesus tells his disciples there that they must be servants of all, the Akonos. 
So who, have to, who do I have to serve? Or who is to be the servant? Well, in that text, in another text, it would present to us that all of us that serve God, that are Christians, are servants, and that we are diakonos in the sense that we serve God. Also, the terminology sometimes is the word minister. The, sometimes the word minister is used in a religious sense to point to the preacher that a church has a minister uh, or that there's a ministry in the sense that there's a specific work that a person is attached to and therefore that makes him the minister. Uh, I think certainly it's not wrong to say someone who to call someone who ministers or serves that minister. But the Bible most often uses the word minister, the word diakonos, in a general sense, in the sense that everyone who's a Christian and all those who are members of the body of Christ are to minister and therefore are ministers. Paul calls himself a servant or a minister of Jesus Christ. He called other Christians such as Tychicus and Apollos servants or ministers of Jesus Christ. It's interesting to note that in Romans chapter 13, Paul even uses the word to describe those who are civil servants. Uh, that those who uphold the law, those who enforce the law, are, are ministers of God to do you good, he says. And he uses the word diakonos. So they serve God and they serve us, the policeman out on the street, the person who is elected to a position of authority. And the Bible is called a diakonos. He is a servant. And so we think about ministers and servants as the word is used in the scriptures. We have this general connotation and understanding. And yet when we come to 1 Timothy chapter 3, we recognize that this is a place where the terminology is used specifically. And then when Paul says uses the word diakonos, and we notice in the English translations that it's translated by the word deacon, we notice that he's using it in a, in a specific way. That this servant, this diakonos, is a special servant who meets, according to the context here, certain qualifications. In fact, what we will notice as well as we look at Acts chapter 6 and maybe other places, that this special servant who meets special qualifications is even given a special work. Thayer says about this word in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that it refers to the office assigned to him by the church. So that the church makes him a servant, makes him a deacon or diakonos by, by appointing him to a specific task. Now I might also, we might also notice that in this context, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, that Paul is referring to male servants or male deacons. Uh, and that's brought out because the adjectives that are used to describe this particular individual within the text are all in the masculine. T- terms such as uh, grave, simnos, and others are all in the masculine, but also, as we're going to notice, it talks about them uh, being the husband of a wife and uses the, uh, the gender-specific terminology to point that out. But in other words, we're, we're another place where we see the specific use of diakonos uh, in, in the scriptures is Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, where Paul and Timothy, it says, bondservants of Jesus Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with bishops and deacons, and that's the word diakonos. And so this passage, as well as 1 Timothy chapter 3, indicate that the overseer, the bishop, the episcopos, and the deacon are specific people. That in the context of 1 Timothy chapter 3, we would come to understand these certain qualifications. And the church at Philippi had both. That they had episcopos, they had overseers, bishops, and they also had uh, diakonos, they had deacons. And so what we come to understand then is that this deacon is a special servant appointed by the church, and the churches in the first century were to have them, and did have both elders uh, and deacons, both bishops, um, overseers, uh, and ministers or deacons in that sense. Uh, it's interesting to me that in terms of the, what we might think of as the misuse of biblical terminology and religion today, 
uh, as we mentioned last week, that when you come to the word pastor in religious t- terminology today, most everyone, we refer that to the preacher, what we think is the preacher, the fellow who d- gets up in the pulpit and speaks. He's the pastor, and many churches have one pastor, when actually the biblical terminology refers to a plurality of elders or bishops that meet qualifications of 1 Timothy chapter 3, so that the elder and the bishop and the pastor are all the same person, and there was a plurality of them in local churches. And so the word pastor is misused when they refer, use it to refer to the preacher rather than to the elder who meets qualifications. And in the same way, the word minister is misused, and that's the word diakonos. So we misuse the, misuse the word episkopos, bishop, and then we misuse the word minister to refer to individuals that the Bible doesn't really describe in that context. Uh, and so what you have in Philippians chapter 1 is you have pastors and ministers. They are not the same person. They are different offices in the church. I recently came across an interesting etymology of the word uh, diakonos, and I'll share it with you here because it helped me maybe formulate a picture of 1 Timothy chapter 3 and what Paul is accomplishing in the text itself. Diakonos is a compound word, and some suggest that the prefix dia means through. Uh, and that's borne out in other, in other places as well. And it's combined with the word konea, which means dust or dirt or flying dirt uh, in the aspect of dust. And so the literal meaning of diakonos is going through the dirt or kicking up dust. And we use that terminology, we use that phrase, maybe some of the idea of kicking up dust. Now others would sort of reject this etymology that it, with the word diakonos uh, the etymology of the word is really the aspect of running or hastening through, uh, and that probably fits too. Because if you're a servant, and you were told something to do it. You were you told something to do. You were to hasten to do it. And so the idea of, uh, of servant would fit into that. But it's interesting to me that the connotation of the word of diakonos through dust uh, might very well give us the idea of a, that a deacon, a servant, is someone who kicks up dust or he's busy doing something. And as I thought about this, I thought about. Well, I kind of got that idea of the word. Have you ever been in a field and you can't see, we can't see what's going on in the field, but you know somebody's doing something on the other side of the field because there's all this dust that's flying up. So it's harvest time and there's a bunch of dust flying up and you think, there's a tractor over there. Somebody's plowing. Somebody's doing something. How do you know you can't see them? Well, they're kicking up dust. Something's going on over there. There's activity. And that's what the deacon's all about. The diakonos, you see, is someone who is doing something. And there's evidence that he's doing something. There's evidence that he's serving in some way. That he meets a qualification that, in essence, you see, he's already bearing out and being tested in that. And so I say that, I I, I sort of suggest this particular connotation of the word, that we begin to look at what 1 Timothy 3 is calling us to do. And that is to look out among us and find... See if there are individuals who are qualified to be deacons, that that's what we're looking for. We're looking for the dust that they're kicking up. Is there evidence that they're doing something? That there are people in the congregation, men in the congregation, who are already serving and doing things that would fit the work of a deacon, and that their lives present evidence that they are busy about that and they're serious about the aspect of kicking up the dust? Well, how does, the tra- how does this passage describe the man? What type of person is to be appointed uh, to serve as a deacon? What we might notice as we read through them, as many times we do in studying them individually, is that there are several of the qualifications that are listed for the deacon that have already been listed for the elder. 
And so the qualifications of the deacon are very similar to the credentials that are given for the pastor or for the elder. Some of the words are synonymous in the text. That doesn't mean that a deacon is a junior elder. It doesn't mean that you have an elder and then you have a fellow who works under him and he's almost an elder and therefore he is a deacon. The deacon and the elder are separate, not only individuals, but I believe from the standpoint of what we understand biblically about them that they are separate tasks or works as well. They are not just one lesser of the other. But what it would present to us is something I think that somewhat is counter to a familiar way of looking at deacons, and that is the aspect that the the elders over the spiritual work and the deacons over the physical work. There may be some ways in which that particular designation might fit uh, what takes place within both of those jobs. But when we look at how Paul places the qualifications of the deacons right alongside the qualifications of the elder, well, what with some of the exact same terminology describe one man to describe the other, that what we would notice from that is that both of these individuals are to be spiritual people. That this is a spiritual work in a very big way. That they are both spiritually qualified to do the work. The deacons are not just physically qualified. It's not that they're strong and they can go a long time without sleep or whatever. might qualify them to do some physical work. That's not the qualifications that are presented here. The qualifications that are presented for this man who would serve as a deacon are spiritual qualifications that have to do with who he is on the inside. What kind of character does he have? Now, as we mentioned, a deacon and elder are not the same individual. The elder is more experienced. The very word elder would point that out. The elder is also given responsibility to oversee or to shepherd, to teach. And some of the qualifications about being able to teach are not found in the list that's given about the deacons. So the deacon is not an overseer, nor is he a shepherd or pastor. But he is a very similar type of individual that would serve in the capacity of being a pastor, if we were appointed. And so I think we could view the character of the deacon, you see, uh, in much the same way we would view the character of an elder, in the sense that many of the qualifications are similar. But what I look for, when you, and again, sometimes I think what we probably need to do many times is just look at all the things that are listed as qualifications, sort of like what we did with the elder, and come up with a formulation in our mind of what kind of man is this? What kind of person is this? And when I think about the idea of not only the definition of the word, but what the qualification point to to me, that what I see in the deacon is someone who's zealous. You know that New Testament word zealous? That idea of zealous means to be eager. It means to be an individual who is ready to engage in activity. He's a person who wants to work or who does work. In essence, he is a person who is kicking up dust. He's serving in, the air, in many of the areas of his own life, spiritually, that are going to be a part of the appointment if he's appointed to the task. And so what I want to do in describing the man is look at the zealousness of this man as it's described in the specific qualifications. And the first area I think we, we might recognize is that the deacon is to be a man who is zealous in his faith. He's zealous in what he understands about God and what he believes about God or what we might typify as his conviction. And this is borne out in the character of the man that Paul says should be appointed. In verse 8, it says that that he is to be dignified. Some translations say reverent or use the word grave. Now that doesn't mean, you know, he takes a vow to never smile. It doesn't mean that he's always walking around with a sad look on his face. And sometimes the English word grave might give us that perspective. The word simnos means honorable, or it means someone who is a serious demeanor, and therefore because he is a serious demeanor, he is dignified in the sight of others. 
The deacon must be one who takes spiritual life seriously. He's not a frivolous type of individual who just dabbles here and there in spirituality. It doesn't mean he never laughs or enjoys life, but it means that when people look at him, they recognize he is a serious adult, particularly about his spiritual life. And therefore, he has the respect of others because he takes things in this very sober and serious way. Verse 8 also says that he must not be double-tongued. And there are several not qualifications here, just like there are in the elders. He's to be this, not this. The idea of double-tongued means that he says a person who says one thing to one person says something else to somebody else. He speaks out of both sides of his mouth, so to speak. He doesn't put his finger to the wind and decide, well, what should I say to this person? And then put his finger to the wind, what should I say to this person? That's what it means to be double-tongued. And so, in the positive sense, the deacon must be an individual, you see, who is honest in his speech. An individual that does not desire to deceive anyone. And I think it's there that says that the terminology here implies the aspect of deception. He's not saying one thing to one person and one thing to another because he can't remember what he said. I've been there before. But he's trying to deceive. He's trying to, you see, please this person without this person knowing. And so the idea of deception is involved in that. The deacon cannot be a person who engages in that type of activity. He doesn't use his words to appeal to people apart from the aspect of what is right and wrong, what is true or false. In verse 8 it also says the deacon is not addicted to much wine, or some translations say not given to much wine. He mentioned last time that that, term, that same very similar qualification is given to the elder, and it means literally that he doesn't stand alongside or stay close to the wine. This is the same type of idea. The word proxexo means to give one's mind to or to occupy yourself with. So the idea of given to wine means someone you see who consciously chooses to be associated with that type of lifestyle, to be addicted. Some translations use the word addicted. But it may very well involve more than just the aspect of physical addiction, at least to that point, but rather to the individual you see who consciously engages in the aspect of the lifestyle of the use of alcohol. It must be someone who chooses to go a different road. What we recognize when we look at society is that the use of alcohol is associated with a lifestyle, drunkenness particularly, and the idea that someone who is, who is willing, willingly gives up, you see, the inhibitions of their life, who willingly give up the control and the temperance of their life in order to get drunk or to have a good time. It's a worldly or fleshly lifestyle that the deacon cannot participate in. He cannot be given to that. And that, I, I believe it flows not only from the aspect of the very danger of the use of alcohol that's presented in the Scriptures in many different places, all the way into the Old Testament, but also the aspect of this man's work is going to be involved in the aspect of reputation. We'll talk about that in just a few moments. And that alcohol is one of those things, the use of alcohol is one of those things that really, you see, enters into that particular discussion. That the use of alcohol many times can disqualify someone, not because of the alcoholic content of what they put in their mouth, but because of the perception that individuals have of them in terms of their temperance of their life and whether or not they are a person you see who is qualified to lead others in that respect. And so if you dabble in the things of the world, you may disqualify yourself as serving as a deacon. And then he says in verse 8, not greedy for money. And sometimes they just use that uh, very unintelligible phrase, filthy lucre. <laughs> we don't use that much, filthy lucre. But he's not given to filthy lucre, and that means dishonest gain. He's not greedy for money. The deacon's someone who can be trusted. 
with the purses of the church or with his own money. Both of those things are connected. He's not influenced by what money can buy. He can't be bought at a price. Someone can't offer him something in order to give up his convictions. He doesn't strive to do things because he will make more money. And sometimes that works against us because we tend to believe, or at least unconsciously associate, financial success with a person's ability to lead or, or even ability to be someone who is prominent among others. And certainly that plays into the aspect of the eldership. But it's mentioned here as well as the deacon cannot be someone who's greedy for money. He must have already fought that battle. Now these things that we're talking about here don't happen accidentally. A person doesn't just go through life and unconsciously acquire these qualities. They are things that must be pursued. They are things that must be given up and sacrifices that must be made to develop a character that's not driven by the force of money. But what Paul says, look out and find someone who's not that way, who's made those choices. And so he has his passions in control. He uses the word when he talks about the wives of the deacons, the word temperate, and I think that certainly plays to it here. And then it says, he must hold fast the mystery of faith with a pure conscience. You might notice, as we mentioned before, that the qualification to be able to teach that's given to the elders is not given to the deacons. That doesn't mean the deacon is not going to teach. But it means that teaching is not an inher- such an inherent part of his responsibility in the idea of shepherding as it is to the elder. But what is pre- presented here is, is clearly the aspect of that which is the foundation of confident teaching, and that is conviction. What type of person is he to be? He's to be a person that holds to the faith. The word hold there means to keep or to grasp tightly. And so here's, here's a person that doesn't have to, it doesn't have to, as I mentioned, just kind of put his finger to the wind or look to see which, people, which way people go to decide what he's going to believe about something. He already knows what the Scripture says. And he holds convictions on those things that really matter in Scriptures. And so the mystery of the faith, the objective message of God that's been revealed, the gospel message, is that is some place where he's been and he's become knowledgeable of the Scriptures to the point that he's able to hold fast that which he knows. And so he's not wavering. He's not unconvinced. In addition, he's a man who lives by his convictions, and that's what brought out in the last part of this phrase when it says, you see, that he strives to live by a pure conscience, or that he holds the mystery of faith in a pure conscience. A pure conscience is one that's not violated, one that's not always striving to be, you see, approved before God, one that does not hurt, so to speak, with the feelings of guilt. And so the deacon must be a man who's begun to live the Christian life and he's come to the point of conviction and he lives by those convictions such that he's not always violating his convictions. Sometimes, you see, that's what we find. Uh, he's a person, you see, uh, who uh, does, does the best he can to serve God and he strives to live by the convictions of his heart. But then it says, lastly there, let these who you will appoint first be tested. Let them serve as deacons being found blameless. Fascinates me that Paul gives these qualifications, which are prerequisites to the appointment of men, and then at the end of, the, of these particular qualifications, or at least near the end, he says, "But let them first be tested. Let them prove themselves, as though they must be qualified before they're appointed." And certainly, that's what's involved, even in the aspect not only of those things that are qualifications, spiritual qualifications of the heart, but the actual practical qualifications of whether or not the person can do the job. He is to be appointed only if he's already proven himself and already been tested to be this type of person and that the really the ruling of that test is that he is without blame. So if a person has tried to do something and then he's failed at that from some kind of spiritual activity and that there's blame in his life and he's not to be appointed to a deacon because 
he needs to be of an individual you see who is blameless in that respect. And that doesn't mean that he's be perfect, perfect, or doesn't demand perfection. It doesn't mean that he won't be tested in the future, or that you, all of us are not tested in our faith, and we have to prove ourselves every day in terms of living out our faith. But he must be a person who has gained the respect of others, has developed a proven character as a Christian, and he can be relied upon. Someone mentioned that a deep, what Paul's describing here is that fellow you don't have to wonder about. You know, I think that's a pretty good way to look at it. There's some folks out there, you're always, you're always wondering about them. You're wondering where he's at. You're wondering what he's doing. You're wondering who he's with. You're wondering about how, whether or not he's doing what's right or not doing what's right. Whether or not he's living the way he should or he's not living the way he should. And his life is characterized by this up and down instability spiritually. And that's what Paul's saying. Let this man be someone that you don't have to wonder about. You know where he's at. You know what he's doing. And you understand the stability of his life. And that is the aspect of the zealousness of his faith. And also, he is to be zealous for his family. In verse 11 and 12, it describes their, the deacon as being someone who is the husband of one wife, ruling their children in their own house as well. We became familiar with the, with the requirements of the elder concerning believing children and the idea of the elder as well must be someone who's proven himself in his family to be someone who rules well, else how can he rule the house of God? Paul also uses the word ruling here in terms of the children of the family as it describes the deacon. This would not allow then the unmarried man to be appointed. It would not allow the individual, the person who doesn't have children to be appointed. It would not allow the polygamist, though we don't have a lot of problem with that in our culture, the polygamist to be appointed because he has to be the husband of one wife. But the emphasis of this qualification, I believe, is again on the aspect of established proven ability of a man to lead his family, both his wife and his children, and that the leadership here is focused on the spiritual leadership he is to provide. So that not only does the congregation respect this man because he's living out his convictions, but more specifically and more to the home, his family respects him. His children respect him and his wife respect him because he's an individual who serves them as well. And so he shows them the way by being someone who is already in the process of serving. In verse 11, there's an interesting connection here, uh, or insertion in the text, where Paul says, Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanders, temperate, faithful in all things. That's the New Kingdom range rendering of that passage. And so we notice that in the middle of the discussion about deacons who are men, he mentions women here, and he addresses the women in the context of the qualifications themselves. What's interesting about that is that there is no word for wife in the specific word for wife in the Greek language. The same word that's translated women is also translated in some contexts as wives or wife. And what has happened in the, in the translation of this particular passage, verse 11, is that some translations have gone to the liberty of, of, of putting in there the idea of wife or assuming from the context or uh, uh, connecting with the context, the idea that who Paul is talking about are the wives of the deacons and these are the qualifications for their wives. And so you'll see in translation the Ameri- uh, of some translations like the King James and the New King James, even the NIV, it says their wives. Other translations are more, I think, I think they are more uh, true to the actual word itself, which simply means women, and they translate that as women. So that's the American Standard Version. I think the New American Standard Version says that as well that it is uh, simply women and not wives. And so the question comes, well, who's he talking about? Is he talking about women in general? Is he talking about, as some suggest, a third uh, uh, group of 
uh, uh, church officials or church office as a deaconess or women servants? Or is he talking about the, the wives of, uh, of the elders or maybe even by extension the wives of the deacons? And that may be a discussion that, that, that maybe we're, that we need to have more time for to fully present. I believe that probably the best understanding from the context, and what I'm convinced of, is that the context supports the view that Paul talking about the character of the elders and the deacons' wives. He used the general word for women to describe their, the character of the woman because the women who are the wives of the elders and the wives of the deacons are so important to the work of those men that he includes what are very similar qualifications for the wives as he does for those who would actually serve in the office. Now some would point out Romans chapter 16 verse 1 where Phoebe is called a servant and that the ikonos is called a servant there, a servant of the church. And some suggest that Phoebe was an official uh, woman, woman deacon, deaconess in the church uh, by that particular text. And I would suggest to you that the work of women in the New Testament is not an insignificant topic. Uh, the work of women uh, among the early disciples is very pronounced in the scriptures. Uh, there are women all over the place from the time of Jesus' early ministry, the time of his resurrection, uh, even the aspect of the writings of the Apostle Paul and those who supported him. Many were women. So the aspect that we would say this is not describing a deaconess is not in any way to, uh, to uh, say that women do not serve or do not uh, diakone uh, in the verb form in the church. The question is whether or not is there's any evidence the church appointed women to a specific office within the church. And my conclusion to that is that there is no further evidence of that in the New Testament. And I don't think the use of that word in a general sense in Romans 16 would necessarily imply that. But certainly the wife of both the deacon and the elder are a vital element of their work and character. So much so that if I understand it, it's, it, this insertion of verse 11 in this context, what Paul is saying that the character of the wife can disqualify a man from serving as an elder or as a deacon. But how these women are to be reverent. They are to be, again, the aspect of uh, sober. The same word is used in verse 8. They are not to be slandered. Some translations say malicious gossips. Interesting that you think gossiping is a problem among God's people or that's a serious sin. The word here is diabolos. Sound familiar? That's the word for the devil. <laughs> it means accuser. So uh, what type of person is it that's the gossip? What type of person is it that's the slander? He's doing the same thing the devil does. He's, it's a person, whether a man or a woman, you see, who delights in accusing others of doing something that's wrong. What Paul says, uh, a deacon's wife can't be that kind of person. And then he, use, he uses the word temperate, or sometimes like say sober, which means someone who has their passions under control. They don't overindulge. They are moderate in their approach to life. And then he says they are faithful in all things. They're trustworthy. They're dependable. You put them to a task. You ask them to do something. Uh, and they do that. They can be trusted. But also there's a zealousness in describing the man for his service. Because in verse 13, Paul says, For those who have served well as deacons obtained themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. They are zealous from the standpoint, you see, of their service. In a sense, I believe what Paul's saying in this verse is that the man who is appointed to serve as a deacon has to live up to what we call him. If we're going to call him a deacon, if we're going to call him a servant, then he needs to serve. He needs to be one who's willing to do that. That when you call on him to do a job, he will do it. He is a person who in that sense is kicking up dust. And others can see that he's kicking up dust. They, they can see that he's, active, that he's actively doing what they ought to do because you see he's rewarded 
by the respect of the congregation as a result of that. The New Living Translation on this verse is interesting. It says, those who do well as deacons will be rewarded with respect from others and will have increased confidence in their faith in Christ Jesus. So you appoint a man to be a deacon. What's he get out of that? I mean, you think about, what do you get by being a servant? Who wants to be a servant? Well, Paul presents it, I think, in a positive sense, maybe for the benefit of those who would be appointed to the task, but even to the benefit of the congregation of understanding the value of this work. That someone who is appointed to serve, appointed to be a deacon, and he gets two th- at least two things in that process. One, he obtains respect from those whom he serves. That their service does not go unnoticed. He gets respect from others. And I think about that from the standpoint of maybe deacons I've known in the past, and men I've known who served as deacons, who've gone about to do the tasks that deacons are to do, and some of them are those tasks that nobody knows is going is being done. They're just done. Uh, and there may be a few individuals in the congregation that are being served that know that somebody came by to give them something and somebody provided for them and they know who this person was and they've been taken care of and, and they see that person in, in the service, they see that person in the, in the assembly you see and they, and they pat them on the back or they hug them and they say thank you to them and nobody else knows what went on. That those people that are being served know who's serving them. And what the deacon gets out of that is he gets love and respect from the people whom he serves. And so you look around you see that even now. Even though we don't have officially have deacons in this congregation, can you look around and notice those who are serving others? Can you, do you know their names? Do you understand who they are? The people that are giving rides to those who don't have rides, taking food to those that don't have food, they're praying for those who need prayers, that are encouraging those with phone calls and letters who need encouragement? That's the ikonos. That's what that is in action. And that, the, the, the fruit of that is exactly what Paul says here. That those individuals are the individuals in a congregation that are respected. Their service does not go unnoticed, even though it goes unpublicized. And also, he says, that they have increased confidence in their faith. That when you appoint a man and he does a job, even a job of serving, even when it's something that nobody else notices is going on, and, and it's not publicized, it's not made it's not made noticeable that he's doing this job, he doesn't stand up before others and announce it, that if you give him that job and he does it well, he grows in his confidence. Confidence where? It's, Paul says his confidence in the faith, he grows. That this is an avenue by which spiritual growth takes place in the life of individual men. Now, real quickly, think about that from the standpoint of Acts, 7, or Acts 6. We're not going to look at Acts 6 tonight, this morning, we don't have time. But I believe Acts 6 is a case study of the appointment of deacons. That when the problem came up, that there were widows being neglected, the apostles said, we can't take care of this. We can't serve tables. We've got to preach and teach the gospel. Look out among yourself. I have seven men full of the Holy Spirit with them. Point them to the task. And that's what the church did. They appointed seven men to that task. And you remember their names? I remember too. I think there was Nicholas, but there was also Stephen and Philip. You know how, you know, how come I can remember their names? because they're mentioned later <laughs> that Stephen is found in the next chapter Acts chapter 7 speaking boldly standing up before the Sanhedrin and said you people this, uh, you people have turned your backs on the Holy Spirit and he rebukes the, lead, the, Jew, the unbelieving Jews and he puts his life on the line and he dies for the cause of Christ how did all that start? well he was just a member of the church of Jerusalem and they appointed him to be a deacon and now he's what? he's confident in his faith he's bold in his faith and then the other fellow is Philip that I remember. 
You remember Philip? Where is he found? Well, in the next chapter after that, Acts chapter 8, this very same deacon, I believe, in Acts chapter 6, is going to Samaria preaching the gospel to individuals that are far away from his home. You ever met a young person? You think you see him on down the line, and one one moment there's just a person sitting in a young person sitting in a pew trying to soak up as much as they can, trying to keep them still for an hour where they listen to the Bible. You look on down the road, and here they are preaching the gospel to people that they've ever heard before, desiring to go tell other people about God. How they get that way? Well, many of those young men got that way because the church gave them a job to do, because they were appointed as a deacon to do work, and they became confident in their faith because that's what Paul said to them. So if a church never pursues the, the, the appointment of elders, never pursues the appointment of deacons, never puts those men in positions of leadership and of service, they cut off the very avenue by which those men can very well grow and be confident in their faith and be what God wants them to be. The goal and the fruit of being a deacon is to grow and serve in other ways never done before. But those men will grow, maybe sometime even to be an elder, but they will grow by the very fact that they have been appointed to serve. So this is a very serious thing and certainly a very powerful, important thing for a church overall is the appointment of those who serve. Thank you for your attention. I've gone a little bit over this morning. Who do you serve? Though you not, may not officially ever be a diakonos and maybe never could be a diakonos, you do serve. Now when somebody asks us that question, well, who do you serve? We might be tempted to say, I don't serve anybody. You know, I'm my own man. Nobody tells me what to do. I don't serve anybody. But the reality of it is, no one can answer that question by saying no one. You serve somebody. And that's what the Bible points out. The reality of it is, we either serve ourselves or we serve God. We either serve God or we serve Satan. We either serve the passions of our own flesh or we serve the desires of the Spirit of God. We either serve righteousness or we serve sinfulness. In Romans chapter 6, do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Having been set free from sin, you became the slaves of righteousness. What Paul tells the Christians in Rome is that you've changed who you serve. Something's happened here. The one time you served yourself and you served unrighteous, but now you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine that was delivered. What was that? That was the gospel. That was the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That was the story of a slain Savior risen from the dead. They'd heard that story and they obeyed the facts of that story in their own conversion process. They died to sin. They were buried in baptism. They were raised in new life. And now they serve Jesus Christ. You serve Jesus Christ. And you start where they started. You obey that form of doctrine to which it's been delivered. And you die to sin and turn away and repent. Will you be buried with Him in baptism? And will you rise to a righteous life of serving God? Maybe we can help you do that. Let's stand and say.